Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. So we'll begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3 and 4 are important. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Somebody say humility. But in humility, somebody say humility. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. Verse 5 says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Here's the beauty. Here's the goal. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. Somebody say humble. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, I love this beautiful part right here. Verse 9 says this, For this reason, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let, let, us, let us pray. Father, we thank you that we get a chance to gather today, God. I, I pray, um, Father, that you would just do something supernatural, something special today as we study together. Um, God, I pray that we will grow in our faith today, God. I pray that we would grow together as believers. I, I pray that we would see the necessity of each other and realize that we cannot do it apart from one another. And so, Father, let this message convict us and encourage us, God. Uh, convict us, Father, in, in the ways that we can draw closer, not just to you, but to other people in the body of, body of believers. But also, Father, I pray that it would encourage us, God, to, to seek each other out, to get in and put, uh, put ourselves in our brothers' and sisters' shoes, God, and what they experience. And so, Father, I just pray that we would see Jesus in a whole new way, a whole new light. I pray that it will radically change our lives. I pray it will be an uncommon experience that we have today studying your word. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. amen. You may be seated. My sermon title today is this, it's the humility for me. (laughs) It's the humility for me. See, you're looking for somebody with money. You're looking for somebody with influence. You're looking for somebody that's cute. You're looking for somebody to help you out and pull you up. But what you really should be looking for is humility. The, the next time you make a new friend or you, you find yourself in some sort of relationship with somebody, let the thing that attracted 
you to them be the humility. And when your friends ask you, hey, why are you hanging around with XYZ so much? Why are you always talking about XYZ? I, I want you to look your friend dead in the eye and say, it, it's the humility for me. It's the humility for me. I think that we all can agree that nobody likes an arrogant person. Nobody likes a person who is prideful and puffed up with pride and think that they are God's gift to the world. But everybody loves somebody who is humble. Matter of fact, I think we can all agree on this one scripture where it says that God rejects the proud or resists the proud. But guess what he does? He gives grace to who? To, to the humble. I think we all love people who are humble. And after today's sermon, I think I want you to look at Jesus. When somebody says, why do you love Jesus so much? You look them dead in the eye and say, it's the humility for me. He was God, but man, he sure was humble. Last week, we talked about living worthy of the gospel. And what we found out was that we are called to suffer with Christ, not just to live with him, but, but to suffer for him as well. A byproduct of our relationship as believers, our relationship with God will be that we will suffer. It, it is promised to us. But, but here's the good news. We realize that God is with us in our suffering. We, we are never alone when we're going through things and going through stuff. I, I mean, God is with us. That is a precious promise that God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even when you feel alone, you are not alone. Your feelings are not indicative to the truth of who God is and what he is in your life, in the proximity he is to you in your circumstances and situations. And so God is with us in our suffering. But not only is God with us, God calls us to do something as a byproduct of our relationship with him. What, what Paul is trying to drive forth here today is that it is, it is not just one thing for, for God to be with us in our suffering, but it is more beautiful when we're in it together. I, I know that God is with me in my suffering, but man, I love it when I know that my brother and sister is standing nearby to be Jesus' hand and feet with me in my suffering, that I am not doing it alone. And so what Paul is calling them forward to to do is be a unified church. Let me tell you this today, folks. A unified church is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of the gospel. Jesus said, they will know that you are mine by the way that you love each other. When people see us getting along, when people see us loving each other and supporting each other and comforting each other and uh, 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 being, there, being there to encourage one another, they see the beauty in that and want to be a part of the community. But if they see each other, we, we, they see us tearing each other apart, nobody wants to be a part of something where it's going to cause you more problems than you had before you joined the situation. And so when they see us, they need to see a church that is getting along, that is standing united. And, and, and for our faith in the midst of a battle with a culture and a society that is hostile to the faith, a faith in which there is the possibility and the promise of suffering, uh, and, and it's always going to be there and always going to be present, the struggle to move onward and be who God called us to be as a people becomes insurmountable when the one that is supposed to be fighting with me side by side turns and starts fighting me. The worst type of casualty or injury in a battle or in a war is the kind that comes when we get struck by friendly fire. 
That there is some real discord going on in this church. This is one of Paul's most favorite church. Out of all the letters that Paul wrote to all the churches that he wrote to, this one has the least amount of problems. They made Paul's heart smile. That Corinthian church, they had a lot of trouble. They, they had some issues. They had all kinds of craziness going on in Corinth. But when we read this letter, the, to- the tone is warm. It's friendly. Like if it was a text, he'd be using smiley faces. He'd be hardened stuff. Like, like it would be all that kind of stuff. Like everything would be beautiful. And this is the kind of letter that it is. But however, this church was great, but they weren't perfect. And if we read along, when we get to chapter four, you can peek ahead. When we get to chapter four. There are two prominent sisters in the church, two ladies who are leaders in the church, and they can't get along. They fight each other. And Paul essentially tells them, Can you just see I? to eye and point blank Paul just says just agree in the Lord stop all this fighting but agree in the Lord we'll deal with those two sisters later when we get to that in chapter 4 but here's what the overarching theme is don't lose sight of the fact that everything that we're doing is for the sake of advancing the gospel and it will be virtually impossible to do if we are fighting an outside enemy and we're fighting each other it's already hard enough to walk out this Christian faith But man, how hard is it when we are fighting each other? You know what happens when we fight each other? We lose sight and we lose focus of what we're really called to do and who we're really called to be. And so what Paul is putting forth is this. Unity is not optional. It is essential to who the church is called to be. Unity is not optional. Rather, unity is essential to who we've been called to be. And if there is any potential for us not to get along, or if it seems like some sort of thing that will cause this unity is on the horizon, he wants us to deal with it, to nip it in the bud, to take care of it, to confront the issues in a way that will be consistent with the gospel. And so here's what I want to tell you. Living worthy of the gospel is not just how you are alone with God, but being worthy or living worthy of the gospel also includes how we glorify God in our relationships with one another. At some point, we will be held accountable for not just how we were with God one-on-one, but how we dealt with one another. Like, like we will be held accountable for the way we managed and stored the relationships that God brought to our lives. And so Paul is telling the people in the church, don't just get along for the sake of getting along. That's not what he wants to do. He's telling them, I want you to get along because it glorifies God. And guess what? Even though it's hard, God has already given you the tools necessary for you guys to have unity. When you got saved, Jesus saved you, and he gave you all the things and virtues that you would need to glorify him in your relationship. And so we got in a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't like we got saved and we had to buy the rest of the parts sold separately. You know, if you, you grew up in the 80s and 90s and you got a toy, it, it, at the end of the Fisher Price commercial, it would say, other items sold separately. It's like, man, I ain't got money for all that. So I got to buy the toy and put the other stuff on layaway. But when we came in a relationship with God, it came with the whole package. We had everything that we need. And so in verse 1, he tells us we had all the things we need for fruitful, fruitful relationships with each other. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he's saying if, if, if. But really what he's saying is since you have these things, since you do have encouragement in Christ, since you do have consolation of love, since you do have a fellowship of the Spirit, since you are, do have affection and mercy, since you have all of these things, they are by 
byproduct of your relationship with God. So live into these things. Use these things, especially the Spirit of God, to make sure that you are united. He says in verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And here's what Paul is saying. Nothing would make me happier than seeing you grow up and get along. Nothing would make me rejoice more than seeing all of you work together by making every effort to show love for each other in tangible ways and bring glory to God. Here's what he's saying. Get along and that will make my joy complete. Here's what Paul understood that we don't understand. Paul is so other people centered that he's not looking for joy in his circumstance. He's looking for joy in outside sources, primarily God, and number one in his interaction with people. If you focus on yourself for too long, you will find problems. There is always something that's going to be wrong with you. There's always something that's going to be just a little off. You will never live in a place of utopia, not until you get to heaven. While we're here on earth, we will always have problems and things to steal our joy. But when we focus on God and then focus on other people, it can bring joy to our souls, and that is what Paul is doing. He says, hey, if you, give, if you guys get along, even though I am under house arrest with somebody chained to me, if you guys are getting along, it will bring joy to my heart. It should bring us joy when we see each other getting along. But just like it should bring joy to us when we see each other getting along, it should grieve our spirits when we don't have unity together. It should drive us to strive for it. He says, think the same way. Have the same love. Be united in spirit. Here's what he's saying. Have the same love, meaning see each other in light of God's work in the other person's life. Have this love. Here's what he's saying. Love me because you see the love of God being manifested in my life. I know you can pick out the problems that you have with me. I know you can see my idiosyncrasies that get on your nerves. I know you can see the parts of me that are still being sanctified, and I ain't quite there yet in my maturity and my walk with God. But can you rejoice with God, and can you love me because you do see some other areas where I have grown in maturity? Sometimes we got to stop looking at what's wrong with people and celebrate God because of the work that he is currently doing in their life. Somebody you know used to curse all the time. Now they just curse every now and again. You ought to celebrate God for that. Not saying that it's acceptable, but you got to praise God for the growth because that is the love of God working out in them. Somebody you used to know used to lie all the time, but now they tell the truth a little bit more. That is the work of God in their life, and you can see them in light of God's love in their life. Here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to know. It is a love that says, if God can put up with my offenses, surely you can put up with my annoyances. If God can put up with my offenses... Surely you can put up with my annoyances. And this is the love that he's calling us to. He says, be united in spirit. It is the spirit that actually holds us 
together. Unity is the result of a spirit-empowered church. If you find a close-knit church where you walk in the building and the people are getting along and you feel love and you're getting hugs and people are asking each other how they're doing and people are loving on each other and people are praying for each other on the spot, you should walk into a church and you should actually see people praying for other people. We shouldn't just be talking in the lobby. That's fine. But sometimes we need to just break out in prayer right there in the lobby, right there in the parking lot, right in the sanctuary, but we can't wait for somebody else to do it. We need to do that for each other. Somebody in here should take the initiative to do that for somebody else. And so he's saying if, if there is unity, if there is love, it is the work of the Spirit. And he's saying this, agree with each other, love each other, let the Spirit that dwells in all of you seek the same thing. Unity flows from God's Spirit. It flows down to us. If we are going to get along, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to help us. I love it what one Puritan said, this guy Thomas Watson said this, there is but one God and they that serve him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely or make more proselytes to it than to see the professors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. Behold how good and pleasant a thing it is to see brethren live together in unity. If God be one, let all that profess him be of one mind and one heart and thus fulfill Christ's prayer that they all may be one. It's God's will for us to be one. And so he's calling us to get along, not just for theological agreement, but he's saying care for each other deeply. Have a love that binds your souls together so strong that if you have a different perspective, the love you have is too strong for that to pull you apart. If we don't agree on something, it shouldn't be enough to make us stop loving each other. If you don't get your way, that shouldn't be enough for you to stop loving somebody else that didn't let you get your way. You shouldn't make an idol out of any idea or any agenda so much so that in your eyes when it gets rejected, you detach from the whole body. That's what he's saying. He's saying let the Spirit lead you to agree in the Lord. And here's the honesty. It's hard work. Unity does not come easy. And it's not accomplished by passivity, but it takes work on behalf of the saints and the Holy Spirit. Like we have to actually pursue getting along with one another, being on one accord. And Paul is actually asking us, allow yourself, allow the Spirit to drive you to put your foot, to put your feet in somebody else's shoes. Step in the shoes of your brothers and sisters. Verses 3 through 4 tells us this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, if you remember, if you were here, there's a point where Paul was talking about some were preaching rivalry, uh, some were preaching Christ out of rivalry and conceit. They were trying to undermine Paul's authority while Paul was away in, pr- in prison. They were trying to use Paul's absence um, a- as a way to get the thing off, to get their own joint going, to get their own thing started, to, to kind of steal the spotlight from Paul, to, to undermine his authority. And, and they were jockeying for position. And Paul was saying, D- don't do stuff for your own good. Don't, don't do stuff 
out of selfish interest because you have uh, uh, the, the willingness to do something that will serve your own per- personal agenda. He's saying do, do nothing out of vain glory, glory that only comes to you. Don't jockey for position in the church. Don't try to make your name, make a name for yourself in the church. Don't, don't come here and try to get your thing off because it's the you show. He, he's saying do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He's saying consider others more important than yourself. It's okay to think highly of yourself, but you should consider somebody else more important than you should consider yourself. You don't always have to have your own way. Your ideas are not always the best ideas. It is not an indication of how we feel about you if we don't implement what you suggested to us. Oh... We need a dance ministry. But it's just you. Oh, we need a bowling alley ministry. But you're the only one bowl. How about you help us out over here and help us with a little greeting? How about you help us with a little bit of AV? Put some scriptures on the screen for us to help us for our reading pleasure. Oh, I'll, I'll wait till you get something else. That's vainglory, because what you're saying is, I'm better than the people who do that. I'm too good. I'm, I'm too good to be pressing any buttons. I'm too good to hug on somebody. I'm too good to love on somebody that, that I don't know. But what he says, the, the, the fixer for all of that is this one virtue called humility. The, the greatest virtue that we can constantly pursue as believers is humility. Here's what it means. Humility, it literally means just a low mindset, a lowly mindset. I'm going to give you a technical definition of humility. I'm going to give you a technical definition of humility. It is this. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I'm going to say that again. Humility is honestly, honestly, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It means this, when I look at God and how holy he is, how perfect he is in all of his ways, and I look at my own life, which can be an absolute mess and drama filled at times, and I see the holiness of God, I know that I don't measure up. The measuring stick ain't other people. The Measuring stick is God, and if we're using the right measuring stick, we will always fall short, and we also will find out that I need to be humble because I am not God, I am not equal with God, and therefore we are all equal at the foot of the cross. I can be humble because even God came and was humble. And so to be humble was to be associated with the lowly of society. In this particular context, to be humble was not something to aspire to. It was reserved for the lowest people in society. If you lived in a Roman empire at that time, you were supposed to be arrogant. You were supposed to brag on yourself and what you can do and how good you were and who you knew and who you were connected to and who your family was and all of these wonderful things. But here Paul is calling us to be humble. It's not a negative perspective on your own self-worth or refusal to be honest about your abilities. Yes, you are good at what you do, and there's nothing wrong with that. Here is the thing. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Let me rewind that for the people in the back that didn't hear me. 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Y'all got me? Thomas Watson said this again, that even if you are good at something, even if you do hit the ball out of the park every now and again, when we have done something praiseworthy, we must hide ourselves under the veil of humility and transfer the glory of all we have done to God. Yes, I did it. Yes, that is my work. Glory to God. Yes, I did good at it. Yes, I graduated summa cum laude or whatever you guys be graduating. Yes, but all glory belongs to God. Yes, I did that thing. I sang that song. I preached that sermon. I greeted them people. I put them scriptures up on that screen so fast. I had them up there before he can get it out of his mouth. Glory to God. Yes, they recognize me at my job. I am employee of the month two times in a row. But it ain't about me. It's about glory to God. And so, here's what he's saying. You know what you'll do when you're humble? You'll promote the good of somebody else, even if it means you got to take the back seat. You are not even competing with other people. You, you are so humble that you are, are, are ready to forget you and exalt somebody else. You, you make it your mission to find good in other people and put them on display. That, that's what a, a humble person would do. You know what a, a prideful person would do? Would try to hide you and throw you in the closet so nobody finds out about you. I don't want nobody to find out you that smart because if they find out, what does that mean for me? And we can all think about situations in our life that happen like that. But God gives grace to the humble. You know what it also means? I'm so humble that when they tell me no at work or at church, I don't have to walk around with resentment. Matter of fact, when they say, here's what we're doing, I'm so humble that even if it was not my idea and what I thought was the best way, but because it's not about me, I can give 100% effort on somebody else's vision and plan as if it was my own, even though I didn't first agree with it. Let, let me say that again for the saints that didn't hear me in their spirit. Here's what it says, that if my idea is not, is not received and I feel like it was rejected, I don't have to walk around the church or my job with resentment towards other people. But when they do implement a thing that maybe was not my idea or the idea I thought was best, because I have humility in my heart and I count others more important than myself, I can get behind somebody else's stuff with 100% effort as if it was my own. That that's some maturity for yourself. That that's some real maturity when you ain't got to have your own way, but you can humble yourself. But when we have these issues that arise in church, show me a church where there is division and quarreling, and I'll show you a church where pride is present. 
And so we have to rid ourselves with our preoccupation with ourselves and doing it our own way and having our own preferences and having our own conveniences and our own comfort, but rather be encouraged by the model of Jesus Christ, be encouraged how Jesus is even submitted to the will of the Father, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are never in disagreement, but they're always working together, giving glory to one another, and that's how we should be in the church. And so Paul says in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Let him be our example. Let his mindset be our mindset. Let his perspective be our perspective. Let his humility, his unselfishness, and his self-sacrificing nature drive us. And after we look at verses 6 through 11 today, we're going to say this. If humility was a person, if humility was a person, but guess what? Humility is a person. And his name is Jesus. And he is the most humble person that ever lived. And let me tell you something. Because we are his children, we have what he has. We are who he is. So if he is humble, then humble is our portion as well. Just like you got your natural mama and daddy's features, we have the features of our father which is in heaven. And so you and I can look just like Jesus and have his same humility. Verses 6 through 8. We're going to see a couple things, his self-sacrifice, his humility, and his obedience. Verses 6 through 8, we'll see his self-sacrifice, his humility, and his obedience. Here's what it says in verses 6 through 8. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I love that. Existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Existing in the form of God. Here's a news flash. Uh, Jesus didn't just start existing as a baby in Bethlehem. That Jesus has always been King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has always been the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus didn't start existing when he was a baby. Jesus always was. He has never not been God. He is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. He has always been and he always will be. They wanted to kill, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was walking around saying stuff like this. He's calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. And to borrow from the Nicene Creed, he is very God, a very God. Jesus has always been God and will always be God. And so our, our friends in the Jehovah's Witness community will tell you that Jesus was not God. That he was just a man. But how about I tell you he's both? That he was not just God, but he was also a man. That he always Existed. He didn't just show up on the scene. He's always been. When God spoke things ex nihilo into existence in Genesis 1, God wasn't speaking by himself. Jesus was speaking too. So, John tells us, John 1.14... The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about his incarnation, the flesh, his incarnation. And so I want to give you some real quick. When we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human, we're talking about what theologians would call the hype 
hypostatic union. If you say that at work, you're going to blow their mind. The hypostatic union, I'm not, trying to sh- I'm not trying to scare you. It just means that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time, that, that he did not cease to be what he had been when he became a man. No, he's not half God and half man. He's fully God and fully man, yet one person. <laughs> what? That's what God is. He's fully God and fully man, yet one person. Y'all are like, whoa. But I'm glad that he's both. He did not lose his divinity by adding humanity. He's both at the same time. His status as God never changed. But when it says that that he did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited, he didn't use it for his advantage. He didn't take his degree and implement it in some place that had nothing to do with it and say, hey, I got this degree. You better respect my mind. No, he didn't say, hey, I got this title over at this church, so now I'm in your church, so you got to respect the title. No, he came in and did not take advantage of his privileges, that he didn't use his status. You know, you know how we do. We, we use everything to get the upper hand in life to our own benefit. We'll throw in, we'll name drop to it. Can't no, no names be dropped. We re, by the time we get finished, it's six degrees of separation, and we are related to the Queen of England. But Jesus does not use his status for his own sake, but he uses it for the sake of others. Scripture says that he, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. He, he, he made it of no account. He didn't empty his divinity. He just put it to the side. He, he just said, I'm not going to use it. He veiled his glory. He masked his glory. He took on a complete nature like ours, yet he's unstained by sin. This is beautiful. Hebrews 2 tells us he, he was made like his brothers in every respect. He, he was made just like you and I without sin, except, except he just didn't sin. He felt everything that you and I feel. So if you're sad, Jesus felt sadness. If you get happy, he felt happiness. If you've ever felt pain, <laughs> Jesus felt pain. If you ever felt abandoned, Jesus felt abandoned. If your bladder ever got tight and you had to go to the bathroom real bad, Jesus felt that too. Why? Because he was also fully human. Jesus feels everything that we feel. Let me, let me, make, let me make it sense to you. Um, I, I like reality TV show. I, I don't like my reality TV too ratchet. I know what you like. You, you like R-H-O-A. I know what you like. It's fine. No judgment here, but I, I prefer the Shark Tank variety. Um, I, I, I prefer the prophet, no, not P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but prophet, the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. I, I prefer that. But, but there's one that I just watched the episode of called Undercover Boss. Oh, I love it. Uh, I think everybody needs to do Undercover Boss. I was thinking, I was like, one day I'm going to come in here with a big suit on and an afro and try to disguise myself and see if anybody hugs me or prays for me. But there's one episode in particular, one of the most viewed episodes of Undercover Boss that covers 
the CEO of Model Sporting Goods. He's a multi-millionaire, has had business for a long time. He lives in the, the rich neighborhood of Alpine, New Jersey. But however, he actually, as a CEO, stepped out of the corner office and came down to hang out with his employees. He put on a disguise, shaved his, shaved his head off, put on a mustache, put on their uniform. He put on their uniform, what they would wear. He came down and he's going throughout the company and he's hanging out with the minimum wage employees and figuring out what they go through on a day-to-day basis, figuring out what their work conditions are. And most of the stuff that he found out made him sad. He realized how hard it was for the people who were submitted under his authority. Oh, he walked around with their uniform on. He stepped down from his role as a CEO. He stepped down from his role out of the office. He's still the CEO, but he came down, hung out with the lowly employees that were in the warehouses, that were driving the trucks, just to feel their pain and see what kind of conditions they had to work in. But at no point in his coming down as a regular employee did he lose his status as CEO. He, he was always the CEO. He just put it aside for a little while to feel what the other people were feeling. I'm trying to help you understand who Jesus is to us. And, and so it gets toward the end of an episode, and he meets this beautiful lady named Angel, the irony. And he goes to Angel, and Angel's customer service is lit. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it was. She's got all the taglines going, and she's serving and training him. He's undercover as somebody who's auditioning to start a business, to win some money to start a business. And so he's walking around, and she's telling him everything about the business, and she's encouraging him and telling him to be strong, and he's going to get through it, and everything's going to go well. And he's amazed by it. And then she reveals this one simple thing. She says, yes, I work here. Yes, I'm full-time, but I also live in a homeless shelter. And he begins to cry right there on the spot. And he feels her pain. He feels her pain. But here's what I loved about her. Even though her conditions were not ideal, she still was serving with joy. How is it the lady in the homeless shelter with three kids to feed on her own has a smile on her face, and we got everything that we need, living at home with a roof over our head, with our name on a lease or name on a mortgage, but sometimes we don't have the best attitude. And he begins to feel for her. And at the end of the episode, he's sitting down with Angel and reveals that he's a CEO. And he says, Angel, I was so moved by your story that I'm not going to promote you and give you a raise. And Angel's like, what? You know how he went, oh my God, oh my goodness, oh my God, oh my God, it's crazy. Oh my God, it's crazy. And then he says, you being in a homeless shelter moved me so much. I'm going to write you a check for $250,000. Angel lost her mind. I don't know if Angel was saved or not, but she sure acted saved at that moment. She was breaking it down. Oh my God, she was rolling on the floor. Hallelujah, thank you. Like she was, and here's what I noticed. He got off of where he was and came down on the floor where she was. 
and he wrapped her in his arms, and he was loving on her in in her condition. And so all I said all that to say this, that is a picture of what God is like for us. At no point did Mr. Modell ever stop being who he was. He was always the CEO, and he's still the CEO. However, because he loved them so much, he came down to where they were to feel their pain, but he didn't just feel the pain. He did something about it, and that's what God is doing for you and I. He ain't just looking at us. He has come down to do something about our condition. And it's humility led him to do that. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. What if we adopted that same thing? I didn't come here to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life so that other people can be saved. And so we find Jesus in John 13 for the Passover feast, and Jesus with his disciples, Jesus gets up from the table, moves his garments to the side, wraps a towel around his waist, puts some water in a basin, gets on his knees, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. To you, that means nothing, because you go and get a mani and a petty. But in those days, they walked out in the dust. And so feet were dirty. There's no telling what they stepped in. But Jesus gets down low to do a menial task. He's the one in authority, but he's serving the ones that are under him. And Peter, in all his splendor, is like, yo, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, well, if, you don't wash, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part of me. And in typical Peter fashion, Peter says, well, then go ahead and wash my hands and my head plus my feet. Come on, Peter. And what Jesus was demonstrating is that leadership is actually servant leadership. And that we have to have the humility to do the task that nobody else wants to be done, even if it means getting low. And if Jesus, who was God and always is God and always will be God, can do the low task, what does that mean for you and I? Christ went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. It's one thing to wash somebody's feet. It's another thing to die for them on a cross. You could not even mention Roman, you could not even mention an execution as a Roman citizen. It was reserved for slaves. So when the text says, assume the form of a servant, what it really means is he assumed the form of a slave. We should have known from the beginning that they put him in a manger as a baby. Not in a nice bassinet, but in something that animals eat out of. But he humbles himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And the cross means so much for you and I Because it liberates us from selfish ambition and frees us to serve others. 
because Jesus got out of the grave, you and I, in the power of the Spirit, can do menial tasks and serve others. And this is the attitude that he wants us to adopt. But if we're going to have humility, we need to look no further than the cross. You can't look at the cross and remain prideful. I'll read you this and then I'm done. John Stott said this. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Humility is found at the cross. And what we see is Jesus' humility, his humiliation. But God didn't leave him there. You love this. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Because of his humiliation... Now, God says, son, it's time for you to experience exaltation. And father steps onto the stage, and he raises his son up out of that grave. And the scriptures tells us that he was highly exalted. Raised up on a cross, brought down low to be raised again. And now he sits at the right hand of the father. Ruling and reigning over everything and everybody in the universe. And at the name of Jesus, every dignitary, every president, every politician, every king, every queen, every boss, every leader, every CEO, every president, every vice president, whoever you name has to bow at the name of Jesus. For he is the Lord. Here's what that means for us. We love him as Savior. But if we confess that he is Lord, that adds a whole nother level element to it. Because to call him Lord means that I submit my life to your lordship. No longer is it my way and my agenda, but it is his way and his agenda. Here's the beautiful news for us, that if we suffer with him and we endure with him, one day we are going to reign with Christ. We're going to sit in that exalted position with Jesus. We're going to reign with him one day. And everybody that ridiculed us, that made fun of us, that cursed his name, that said he wasn't real, that persecuted Christians, that killed Christians that made it difficult for you to be a Christian at your job, that, was shun that the family members that shunned you because you wanted to follow Jesus, they will all have to recognize and bow their knees and confess with their mouth that he is Lord. One day we will be vindicated. But in the meantime, 
He's calling us to humble ourselves and serve others. So the next time I ask somebody about you and they give me a report about you, I want them to look me in my eye and say this one thing. What do you think about Sheree? It's the humility for me. Let that be our desire. It's the humility for me. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.